1: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I have the one and the only wonderful person with me, which is Christopher. Chris, have we got on?
3: <laughs> the, the more and more we record, the nicer you get. I'm trying to worry.
2: <laughs> what, have I got something hidden in the bag for when I come over to the UK and then it's going to come out of the bag and you're going to be scared? Is that what it is?
3: Yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to help my anxiety. Uh, so moving on, I have brought you Vicky Holton, who is a research fellow who has written many research reports, such as Understanding Women's Careers, as well as Co-Authoring Strategies for Career Success, How to Thrive and Survive as a Working Woman, and a Woman in Business Navigating Career Success. But she's here today to talk to us about her new book, A Woman's Will, Changing Lives of British Women, Pulled Through the Things that They've Left Behind. So uh, Vicky, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm fine,
1: thank you. And apologies for- Giving you such a long title to read out. <laughs> we should have stuck with a shorter one, shouldn't we? A Woman's Will.
3: Yeah, that, that was my fault, though. I was trying to be thorough.
2: <laughs> I've <laughs> got to say, listening to Chris read out the other book titles, I mean, I love history, don't get me wrong, but I'm kind of inspired by the books at the same time. So, for example, yeah. like Strategies for Career Success, I think I need to read this to help move my career. <laughs>
1: Yes, they're all very good
2: reads. I love it. I'm into this. I love a bit of women's history, and I love a bit of a powerful woman. So uh, let's let's talk history and powerful women. Well, we've done a lot of stuff on Anglo-Saxons. There's so many books and all these kind of studies and archaeological studies about Saxon women. But what else can we learn about them? Were they even able to leave, for example, a will?
1: Yes, they could. And, and we only know this, um, from some of the reports that we have in the chronicles, the Anglo-Saxon chronicles. But then we also have a few wills that have survived, which seems amazing because, I mean, we're talking about before 1066 and the Norman conquest. So most of those surviving wills, um, are from aristocratic widows. They're written in Old English. And they give us an idea of what their elite lifestyle were like these were These were people at the top of the society. They were from very powerful families, but they're also in their own right. They're powerful themselves. They own huge estates that go across a number of different counties in England. Um, most of the wheels were found in Burris and Edmonds, but um, we don't have many from the north, but they show us different things about their life. So one of the things that perhaps you know from already hearing about the Saxons is that the, towards the end of the time, before the Norman Conquest, they were extremely pious. So they give very generous gifts to the church, even Holy States. They give gold. Um, Queen Emma, she was the mother of Edward the Confessor. She leaves a manor house in the centre of Winchester to St Swithin's Priory. This is in the year 1052. And although her will didn't survive in this case, we know that she said it should be tax-free and toll-free forever. And and so it remained up until the time of Henry VIII. And, of course, he dissolved the monasteries and he made Britain again um, into a Protestant country instead of a Catholic one, which is what it was at the Saxon times all the way through the Middle Ages. We also have a widow, Athol who died in 990. And in particular, I like her will because it's so vast what she gives to St Albans Abbey. She gives them 30 ox, 20 cows, some gold and 250 sheep as well. And and there are other things as well, including land in some of the villages that you would still know in this area of Hertfordshire. So Gadston, Offley and Ashwell are still very well-known village names. So that's interesting. We also have lots of household items like clothes. Someone, for instance, leaves her better cloak. We hear about headbands, brooches, the best bed curtain and linen cover, covering, sorry, Um, which I think a linen covering means a quilt um, in our terms. But they're obviously very proud of their houses and what they've got within them. So We find that, and I think that's really interesting. But we also have those strong bonds that we see all the way through the earlier centuries into modern times. We find the family, the children, and the grandchildren are very important. So there's a will by a woman called Winflaed, where her grandson receives the untamed horses, and her daughter, uh, sorry, her granddaughter, who's called Edgifu, is given the tame ones. So, they're obviously on equal footing in some degrees in terms of what they're left. And you can see this all the way through the wills and from the men's wills, which survive as well. That sometimes a son and a daughter, for instance, are given a house or an estate to share, and they're to share it equally between them. So, there is a lot of equality that we can find from these. Um, but just going back to Ed Gifu, she's also given two slaves. By her grandmother, so one has the same name as her. She's an Edgifu as well, and one is a seamstress, and the other one is a weaver. And we also see in other wills um that wills uh, that slaves are set free. So the the precise term in one of the wills is that I wish that half my men in every village be freed, for my soul. So the idea is and what the Saxon church. Except even a bishop owns slaves, you must remember, um, is that if you free some of your slaves or maybe perhaps all of them, you will be more likely to go to heaven. And that's an important point for a group of people who are so very pious. So I think it's really interesting that we find that tension between Christian beliefs and owning slaves. And of course that then comes back in again much later on in history in the Georgian Wars as well. So I think that's a sort of like a very brief rushed tour through Saxon wills.
3: You wouldn't necessarily think that a will could actually tell you much about culture and beliefs, but it's it's all there.
1: Yes, it is. And I, I think what's important is you you read um different things like for instance those strong family bonds that I talk about I mean they don't say in any will you hardly ever see uh, for the love of my children or the love of my grandchildren but you know that it's an important part of what the person is leaving because they're the last things that they think about and this idea of leaving things to um family members as a remembrance so there's one will for instance That leaves her, the woman leaves her old filigree brooch to her daughter. Well, clearly it had sentimental value. It wasn't for the actual financial value of it, but unfortunately, of course, we don't know what the sentimental value was. Perhaps it belonged to an earlier generation in the family.
3: Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was going (laughs) to go into details like from my grand, from my own grandparents' wills. You get passed down family heirlooms that mean something, but it wouldn't. You wouldn't translate it in the documents.
1: That's right, and I, I do. I do remember talking to somebody when I was doing the research for this book, and she said she was given a bequest from her grandmother. This is in a very modern times, sort of perhaps about ten years ago, um, but it was a collection of dolls. Well, for her grandmother, it was a very important collection. For the granddaughter, it it wasn't anything that she wanted. Yeah. So you get different things between different generations because we change so much, don't we? It's not just in fashion. It's in things that we want in our houses, things that we think are precious.
3: Absolutely. My my son has had that conversation with me about my Star Wars memorabilia. <laughs> Apparently, I'm the only one that wants it.
2: Does he want to inherit it, Chris?
3: Not all of it. <laughs> A good chunk of it is like, no. <laughs>
2: For me, Sorry. when my grandparents died, it was their book collection. Obviously, there's some very rare books in there that the rest of the family just didn't or They just don't read Polish, for example. And yeah. also, I received some of my stuff from my grandfather's time during the Warsaw Uprising, which to me is priceless. But to someone else, yeah. it's just, you know, junk that they'll just hand over to a museum, for example. Yeah, but they're very special memories, I can imagine. Very important and are within my family. Anyway, do you know what? We're going off on a rant and I could just I'm gonna start pulling the reins on this. I'm gonna start (laughs) pulling the reins on this. Right, let's let's move on to the next question. Because I know that we could probably talk about Wills for the next twenty five minutes and then that's the whole podcast is over. But (laughs) (laughs) so tell us who was Cat Purse Mole and was she typical of women in her period?
1: Well, that the name is cut purse mole, so perhaps Thank if you I just that. explain <laughs> it, that's all right. If I explain it, you'll understand why it it was a term that you used for somebody who was a thief, so now you know what she did for a living and It was in the days Elizabethan times when men and women would wear a belt round their waist, and from that you would hang your money purse, so somebody would sneak up behind you and really quickly cut the leather thongs or whatever else it was that's holding the belt and the purse together and be off so you can tell that she's not typical at all because she's a thief but what i like particularly about her and i hope you'll like as well is that she is completely outrageous she doesn't conform to any of the ideals of what a woman should be like in any earlier century Even the Edwardian women are expected to be quiet and obedient to their husband and to their parents, and Mole is none of these things. Her voice evidently was louder than a man. She swore quite a lot, and she smoked, and at that time smoking had come from the New World, from America, and she was very keen on that. She had a very long pipe, and we know that because there's actually a a woodcut of her that was made um, when they wrote a play about her. So two of Shakespeare's contemporaries, Thomas Decker and Thomas Middleton, in 1611, wrote a play about her. It's supposed to be a comedy, and Cut Purse Mole is defending the respectable citizens of London. So you can take that with pinched salt, can't you? You you can imagine the London theatres would have been in absolute hoots of laughter about this. But the title, which I love, is The Roaring Girl. So you can tell what kind of volume she, she came around with. You know, she she was just amazing. And she got into lots of trouble with the church um, for her bad ways. And at one point, because of course the church is very powerful in these times, the church insists that she do a penance. And that means that you have to walk through the street, people come to watch you, because they want to see what you've been up to and how awful it is and everything, and you're supposed to show regret. So one of the witnesses who watched this penance as Mole walks through the street noted that she cried, but he suspected that it wasn't necessarily that she was so sorry for what she'd done, but it had quite a lot to do with the amount of alcohol that she had drunk before she started on the penance. So you can tell she is just. Completely extraordinary. And she's what I like about her is that she survived in her time as a thief, and even better, she made a profit out of it. So by the time she comes to leave her will, which is the year before Charles II comes back to the throne, so we're now talking about 1659, she has a house in Fleet Street to leave. And Fleet Street was a poor area then, but nevertheless, it's a house. And she's got some money to leave as well. She she could keep servants in her house, and she leaves almost everything to her niece Frances, who she also names as executrix, which is the formal term for a female executor of a will. But in the will, Mole says, she puts the words that this bequest is unto her own sole use. And that's the term that's used Throughout um history to exclude the husband, so up until the late eighteen hundreds, a woman married woman did not own her own property by law; it belonged to her husband so for instance, a few decades before this, when William Shakespeare was finally changing his will, he takes out the word "son-in-law" to ensure that the worthless son-in-law couldn't claim his wife's bequests. From William Shakespeare. So I think that's, that's a really important distinction um, about what happened to her. But the other point I, th- I think that I, perhaps I should say about Cutpurse Mole is that she does become respectable and she gets a church burial in St. Bride's Church near Fleet Street. And I, I quite like that too. So I, I hope you like her um, and are curious to know more about her because there are so many stories and mythology. That grew up about her. The most absurd stories grew up about her, and I think she thoroughly enjoyed it all. And she just understood the power of having a great uh, publicist to tell her story to all the citizens of London.
3: Absolutely. When I was doing the doing the research and reading through the book, I saw the name caught my eye, and I just I thought she was amazing. A really <laughs> such an interesting character.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the stories about her is that. When she was young, she must have been, you know, so much trouble to the family, um, that her uncle decides to ship her off to America. So (laughs) there are various accounts of how this doesn't actually happen. But the one that I particularly like is that she just jumps over the side and swims back to the the shore and escapes and returns to her thoroughly bad life in London.
3: (laughs) That's amazing.
1: She's badass. I love her. Yeah, well, she might not be true. No, Sorry, she is true. The will is true. But all of these stories might just be completely absurd compared to what she was like in real life. But uh, she's got enough of a bad reputation that within two years of her life ending, somebody had written a book about her biography.
3: Wow, that's amazing, especially that she came from quite low beginnings.
1: Yes, she did. Her family had absolutely nothing. Um, she was born into poverty and of course the usual uh, occupation for a woman who was terrible poor was that she might earn some money by prostitution and I quite like the fact that Mole didn't go down that avenue at all. She decided she was going to be, well, not respectable but a bit more respectable than prostitutes were thought of in those times, in Elizabethan times.
3: Talking about unrespectable, uh, disrespectful? Hang on. I'm trying to think what the right English word would be. Women without respect. Uh Let's talk about witches.
1: Okay. Yeah, I think this is very interesting in terms of women's history because it's mostly women who are accused of being a witch. It, it does happen to some men, but in earlier centuries, it's usually women who are poor, um, who don't have any friends or supporters to help them. So, for instance, if you perhaps had an argument with a neighbour Or perhaps the neighbours thought that you had cursed their cattle or put a hex on them, a spell on them or something like that. You might be accused of being a witch, but perhaps you can see how important this might be if you know that if you were found guilty, then you would be sentenced to death by hanging or by burning. So the one story that I thought I would tell you out of the ones from the book is one that happened in 1672. So we're still at the time of Charles II, and we're in the town of Malmesbury in Wilkeshire, and a widow, Elizabeth Peacock, um, is accused when a neighbour's child falls ill. So eventually, 14 people are actually accused of all sorts of witchcraft and things that were going on. And out of 14, Elizabeth... And three others were sent to trial in Salisbury. So the two who had confessed, because you were supposed to confess as a witch to show that, you know, you had been dealing with the devil and black magic. So they were hanged. And that included Elizabeth's sister, Judith. So the other two, presumably, came back to Malmesbury. And the thought is that because they didn't confess, there wasn't a conviction against them. Um, and there the story might have ended, but for the work of a modern historian who was interested, a man called Tony McLeavy, who in 2015 found Elizabeth Peacock's will. So we know from that that she couldn't read nor write, and, and that was fairly common of all social classes. So she marks her will with a cross. And she died three years after the trial had happened. So she has cottage and clothes to leave. It's not very much in terms of monetary value, but she leaves that to another sister. But the important thing is that she asks for a decent burial. And we know that she was buried at Malmesbury Abbey in 1675. So a bit like cut pepper's mold, we know that the church accepts them back into the faith for a decent burial. And in this case, for Elizabeth Peacock, the church is actually saying, to everybody in that town and they would have known that she's not a witch. She's a Christian. She's orthodox and God fearing. So I, I think that's very interesting to find that interpretation that we only know because of her will. Everything else is being lost. It probably was passed down through the family in an oral tradition, but then it's gone, isn't it?
2: I think wills are such a powerful thing to be able to tell you so much that You might not be able to tell from material objects or other various different sort of cultures or even memoirs and testimonies. You see what's important to these people. Why, how and when. It answers quite a lot of questions, doesn't it?
1: Yes. Yes, it does. And it probably means, uh, I mean, I I think it's obvious because so many women were accused that many of them, their only fault was that they fell out
2: with somebody. I've got to tell you, I think I'd be totally, utterly screwed where I live right now. I fell out with one of my neighbours. She's not a very nice person and she really doesn't like me. I think she'd be one of the first people to accuse me and my my lovely neighbour next to me of being two evil bitches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I would, wouldn't be at all surprised. And if we went back to the Elizabethan
1: times, you'd be really
3: worried. One of my favourite examples, I, I was looking at the... Um which Trials in Maidstone, which is near me because I had nothing to do that afternoon. And there was a, an elderly couple were had fallen out with one of their neighbours. And he had a boat uh, ship that was going around Kent that was lost in a storm with a grain shipment. And he accused them of witchcraft and they'd summoned the storm. Uh, to destroy yeah. it, to sink a ship. Thankfully for them, the, uh, head of the Rochester Assizes looked at him and went, nah, <laughs> and, and pronounced them innocent. But it was, it was just yeah. that sort of petty, pettiness of like, well, they, they, they must have done it. They've summoned a storm.
1: Um, yeah. And you, you wonder also what, what else was going on behind that. So perhaps they've been falling out between them in earlier times. So this was his sort of like payback.
3: Yeah. So other than witchcraft, <laughs> we also end up with, uh, Childbirth at this sort of time is quite, quite uh, well up until the 20th century it was quite dicey. So, what what were childbirth wills?
1: Well, I think you make an important point. It's because um, the chances of dying in childbirth were so great. So, in, until we have a situation where modern medicine and hygiene, so that's the late Victorian times, till they're discovered and they sort of move to one side, kind of superstition and the ideas that people have about childbirth uh, and what's good for you. So you did have midwives in earlier centuries, and so going back into the sort of like Middle Ages all all the way through. But you also have no modern medicine. So you were very likely to make a will in case you died. And, And there's a couple that are interesting, I think, just to illustrate what happened. One was... Queen Mary Tudor. So she's the daughter of Henry VIII and she is Catholic. So, whereas Henry VIII had made the country Protestant, Mary decides she wants to make it Catholic again. So, she marries King Philip of Spain and she starts the slow process to bring everything back to the Catholic faith. So, when she finds she's pregnant, she makes a will because that's very important. This is her only child, her first child. And she's now um in her late 30s, which is old by their terms. But even after there's a proclamation made and there's huge celebrations in the country because it's the Queen's heir, it turns out to be a phantom pregnancy. And now um modern historians think it's probably a symptom of what killed her a few years later, which was cancer. So that one is very sad. There's also the case of Mary, Queen of Scots. When she was expecting her son, this is her first child as well, her son James, who eventually becomes James I of England, she makes a will. And in that case, she goes through her list of jewellery. Mary was exceptionally fond of jewellery. And she ticks off who's going to receive which bits and pieces. But the will and the inventory actually still survive in the National Archives of Scotland. And in this case, there's a happier outcome as such as both Mary and and the baby son survive. But of course, as we probably all know, within a few years, Mary is exiled from Scotland and she comes to England where she's in prison for the rest of her life until she's executed. So they're very sad, the childbirth wills, I think, because these are women who are usually young They assume that they're going to die, and so they're making their last will and testament. And occasionally, we find them only long after, like the one that belonged to Georgiana, the Duchess of Devonshire, uh, who thought she was going to die. And it was only when Amanda Foreman came to do the research for her biography back in 2008 that she found the pregnancy will, the childbirth will, in the archives at Chatsworth House up in Derbyshire. So it had been completely forgotten. I never think
2: to make a will while you were pregnant. Obviously, as Chris mentioned, you just don't think about it these days. In those days, childbirth was very difficult and very hard. And I'm just stumped here. It's like, wow, that I would not have thought of any of this at all.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row?
1: Well, I think when you go back to earlier centuries, even in Georgian times, almost everybody would, either within their family or their friends or their neighbours, they would all know a number of people, young women, who had died in childbirth. And of course, age was stacked against you, so the older you were, like Mary Tudor, the more dangerous it was. I'm not sure that that was always recognised or if it was your first child, but but this cuts across every social class so a queen might die so Henry the third wife Jane Seymour Seymour she dies in Chava. but so it's not just poor people it it's because we don't understand medicine and hygiene
3: so let's move on to uh, uh, this is one of my favorite so niche rabbit holes is the the South Sea bubble and the Churchills made quite a bit of money out of it didn't they
1: uh, they certainly did. Um, and I think a lot of that is because, I mean, we're talking about John and Sarah Churchill here, the Duke, the first Duke and the first Duchess of Marlborough. And Sarah is a shrewd businesswoman. She is very, very astute. So at one time, her descendants still remember this, she actually lent money to the Bank of England. So she's a very clever bunny. Um, But they meet and fall in love in the 1670s, and the Duke is the great victor of the Battle of um, Blenheim, so the nation and Queen Anne give him woodstock land, 12,000 acres, and money to buy Blenheim Palace. So as we go through, we get to the 1720s, and this is when they both, Duke and the Duchess, they both decide to invest in this government scheme called the South Sea Company. So it's one of these things, I mean, this sounds very familiar to modern financial crashes, but it can't fail. So it's set up to trade with Spanish America and the stocks were sold and resold and resold. And all the time this inflates the stock prices that are paid until there comes a point when Sarah decides that it's time to take her money out. Not only does she do it, they've already tripled their investment by now, but she also persuades the Duke to do the same. So an idea of how much money they have between them is that when the Duke dies in 1722, he's worth around a million pound, excluding Glenham Palace. So it's a million pound in those terms, in, in that day. So we might say you know, something around 80 million today. It's diff- difficult to say. Because, of course, then what happens is the South Sea Company becomes the South Sea Bubble. It bursts, it crashes in 1720. Hundreds of bankrupt and lose everything, there are suicides in London, it, it's a terrible, it's a national disaster, and there's questions asked in Parliament, all sorts of things, but going a bit further on, we won't talk about this necessarily, but it, it's just interesting, because it leaves Sarah with so much money, <laughs> that she actually makes and remakes her will 26 times, while she decides who she's going to leave what to in her family, that's a uh, Twenty, twenty or so years later, after that, so like you, Chris, I think the South Sea Bubble is a fascinating topic because it's all um, smoke mirrors.
3: Yeah, like you said, it was um, it, it was pitched as a this can't go wrong. We're going to make so much money, and then they start doing like a Max Biela stock and just selling more shares than it's worth. It's like yeah, we've got about yeah. one thousand, every the, one thousand percent of it has gone, <laughs> and it just.
1: Yes, that's right. So there must have been other people like the Churchills who made an awful lot of money out of it, but there weren't very many, were there?
3: No, no. And it's one of those subjects that doesn't, it's not very well known, and it probably should Mm. be.
1: Yes, yeah. I'm sure there are books about it, but there probably should be lots of books about it. And then we wouldn't make the same mistakes for modern financial crashes, would we? (laughs)
3: I won't cut that the the way we repeat our history and make the same mistakes over and over again I'm I'm not sure but it it is a good it's a great cautionary story
1: I
2: know I have no idea what it was till basically Vicky you just told us about it so it is actually really interesting
1: Mm. I I think it is because it's um, again Sarah is is bucking the trend she manages her own business affairs so her money goes into the South Sea Bubble. Sorry, I should say, when it goes in, it's a South Sea company. And the Duke invests his money, so they keep their money separate, which is very
2: unusual. So, we've got a lot of questions to move forward with. Uh, let's talk about Queen Isabella, because she had a very interesting time, didn't she? Well,
1: she certainly did, and a very dangerous one too. Um, she will deal first with the beginning and the end of her life, perhaps, and it's, it's the middle bit that gets very interesting. So she comes early on at the age of about 12 or 13 to marry King Edward the second. She's the daughter of the King of France. And at the end of her life, she is the King's beloved mother. So she's the mother of Edward the third. So she's very respectable. She has a sumptuous funeral at the end of her life. She's very respected again. But in the middle part of her life, things are going very badly wrong. She's nearly 30, and her husband, Edward II, has a favourite. And between them, the two men are more or less ruling England, which is very factionally divided. And as Isabella's influence goes down, she's already had her children and the all import son and heir, so as her influence goes down, the favourite becomes more important, and starts to obviously move against her in very particular ways. So, for instance, he insists that her French servants are dismissed. um, Her children are taken away from her, so she would normally look after them and decide what their education would be, things like that. So he does that. So at this point, she's still the sister of King of France, as it is then. So her brother has succeeded to the throne in France. And she goes to Paris, to France, to negotiate a peace treaty, with it, which she does. And then she decides to stay on in Paris. And she writes back excuses to her husband in England about why she hasn't returned. And at this point, um, she takes a lover, Roger Mortimer, who's already exiled and is accused of treason by the king. So you can imagine this is extremely dangerous, not just interesting from her point of view, because perhaps she enjoyed taking a lover, but it's very, very dangerous for her. So if, for instance, she went back to England at that point, she would certainly have either been divorced or imprisoned for the rest of her life. So the excuses carry on until she gets to the stage where she asks the king, she demands that he banish his favourite. Was virtually the ruler of the, the kingdom, before she will agree to return to England and so we get to a stalemate situation until perhaps she already had this in mind when she started off on her journey, because by this time she's got her son and heir with her she decides that she might be able to invade from from where she is with Raising money from her dower lands in France, which she can do, and a very good contract negotiated with the Count of Hainault that perhaps his daughter Philippa could marry her young son when and he will become eventually he will become king of England so Roger Mortimer and Isabella together with mercenaries and the other people who have been exiled by the king already who are living in Paris and France, they have enough to invade from East Anglia but it's not exactly the kind of invasion you might expect because what they do is they gradually work across to Cambridge so it's not that far and they stop there to gather supporters and then they go all the way across country and n- no one opposes them they go all the way through to Oxford and then they're joined by more people so by this time the king was well It it, it was finished. So he runs away, and then he is captured again and imprisoned and persuaded to abdicate in favour of his son, who is only then at the age of 14 or 15. So Isabella is regent, and she rules along with Roger Mortimer. And in the meantime, her husband is imprisoned and dies in what they might term mysterious circumstances. So in other words, he's murdered, um, to sort that one out. So Isabella and Roger don't learn anything from all the dislike that the king and his favourite have created in the years before, because they rule just as badly. They're feuds and factions, and they take far too much money for themselves, and there's a lot of unrest. In fact, it's so bad that Roger Mortimer doesn't go on pilgrimage to Spain, to St. James of Compostela, because he's so worried about what's going to happen, whether there's going to be an uprising or not against them. But it doesn't come from the barons and the knights. It actually comes from Isabella's son, who's now Edward III, because he's now nearly 18, and he realises that if he doesn't act now, he will always just be a puppet. So Roger Mortimer, in effect, is the king of England, and Isabella does whatever he tells her to do. She is intelligent, she's very intelligent, but she is dominated by him. And so at that point, her son captures Mortimer. He is tried, very quickly tried and executed, and Isabella is put under house arrest. So the first place they take her to is Bergenstead Castle, and then within a short while, when the court go to Windsor, to Windsor Castle, Isabella joins them there. She's still under house arrest, but gradually her all her belongings, her lands, everything that was immediately confiscated comes back to her and she does become the king's mother. So I think interesting is uh, one way to describe her life. I think it must have been just so dangerous as well. I mean, if things had turned the other way round, if the king hadn't been so unpopular in England when Roger Mortimer and Isabella came to invade, then, well, again, perhaps she was still the sister of the king of France. Perhaps they would just put her in prison for the rest of her life. It could have been worse.
3: Yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly <laughs> an eventful life.
1: Well, Is Isabella lives for another... 28, nearly 30 years after the coup d'etat. So after she becomes the king's mother, then her properties and her lands go back to her, her income. But at the end of her life, one of the things she wants is to be buried in her wedding cloak. And I think that is clearly because of all those terrible feelings and the guilt that she must have felt during the rebellion and going back to depose her husband. I mean, nothing like that had ever happened in British history before. Since the time of William the Conqueror, it was a huge thing. I mean, she changes history completely. Absolutely,
3: yeah. I mean, she, she, the Mortimer Rebellion and the death of Edward the Second was echoed then through, and it was almost a blueprint for later, later rebellions. But I feel I should ask this question for, for Beth White, who wanted to be here for this one, and she's a big fan of Jane Austen, but. So I I feel I have to ask this for Beth Wyatt, who desperately wanted to be here for this one. She's a big fan of Jane Austen. So what is the story behind Jane Austen's ring and her
1: estate? Well, I'm very happy to give Beth a bit of information that maybe she she will know the story anyway when she hears it again. But there's a ring that belongs to Jane Austen, which is kept in the family until 2012. So when Jane writes her will in 1817, everything is left to her dearest sister, Cassandra her oldest sister, so we don't have any mention of Jane's manuscripts of Pride and Prejudice or her letters or her jewellery. Now we know that she didn't own very much jewellery, in fact the ring is one of probably only three pieces. It's turquoise set on a a very thin gold band and turquoise was Jane's birthstone for December, so Cassandra has it first, Then a few years later, she gives it to Eleanor Jackson when she becomes engaged to their brother, Henry Austin. Then after about 40 years, Eleanor then bequeaths it to Jane's niece, Caroline. And so it goes down with the women of the Austin family. And I I find all of these things that belong just in the women's side of the family so interesting. So you have dull houses, and I think it's really interesting that in this case, it was nearly the ring, Jane's ring, was nearly lost to the nation because the American singer Kelly Clarkson bought it at auction. So the reserve price had been twenty to thirty thousand, but of course it it raised much, much more because Jane is so popular these days, and it raised one hundred and fifty-two thousand four hundred and fifty pounds, to be precise. So. The government did agree to put an export ban on it, which is what they can do for items that we think are particularly important to our national history or to a particular person. So the export ban had a tight deadline and they tried to raise donations. So these would come from private people. There was no, there is no government fund for this. It just has to be an appeal, a public appeal. But in this case, James Ring, um, they quickly raised the money and it included an anonymous donation of a hundred thousand, which I think is just amazing. So now, where is the ring? Well, it's come back to Chawton Museum, to the Jane Austen Museum. And so it could very well be said to have come home because that's where Jane and her mother and Cassandra and their best friend Martha Lloyd Where they lived, and Jane was there for the last eight years of her life, and where we know she did much of her writing. So I I think it's it's a delightful story.
3: Yeah, absolutely. When I was reading through for the research, it was it was nice to see it come back, but the fact that we it was almost lost to the nation.
1: Yes, and and the other nice thing about it that isn't in the book is that apparently Kelly Clarkson took the news very well. She had a copy made of the ring, and she wears the copy. Ah, oh, that's good. <laughs> yes.
3: But, I mean, um, the book overall, you've got so many fascinating sort of individual stories and ones we're unfortunately not going to have a chance to talk about today, like um, Emily Teen's Bad Habit, Servants Emily Greer, and there are just, there's, it's just such, so, so packed with these great stories and wills.
1: Yes. I, I think the, we, we haven't really talked about the women who would otherwise be anonymous. Well, perhaps apart from Cut Purse. <laughs> Mole, but Emily Green is interesting because the only things that we know about her, she didn't leave a will. The only things we know are are what her family can tell us, and there's so many, so many stories like that that we don't know that are in sort of like family histories. So, if any listeners have got the interest and the curiosity now, talk to the other people in your family, talk to the older generations, and find out these stories.
3: Absolutely, and. As I said, your, your your book's really detailed and goes, and you do talk about a lot of the uh, sort of history from below. Could you remind everyone of the subtitle sort of title of your book and when it's available?
1: I believe it's available now. I'll give you the short title. It's called A Woman's Will, um, and I think you can find it from Amberley and Publishers and in other places, and of course um, on History Hat.
3: Absolutely, we we will we will put it on our on our on our bookshop so that. Uh, you get some more money from every sale, and we get a little bit of money, and um, there won't be any more rocket ships with the uh, online bookshops written on side.
1: <laughs> That's brilliant. That sounds like a very good deal, Chris.
3: <laughs> yeah, thanks very, thanks very much for coming on and, and talking to us about this.
1: Thank you, and and thank you for bearing with all the technology problems. It's been um, a real pleasure to tell you something about these women.
2: Our incredible guests give us forty five minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash historyhack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.
0: Hold up.